Okay, we're going to start out this morning in Revelation chapter 6, and I uh, just want to make a comment or two about uh, our study this morning is going to be on the subject of the person that we call the Antichrist. And a lot of people that you run into say, well, I don't really care about studying the book of Revelation. I don't care. I don't get into all this prophecy thing because it's just something that, should, that doesn't have any bearing on me or doesn't have any bearing on us, and we, we shouldn't focus on that. But I just remind you that throughout the church, throughout the history of the world, throughout the Old Testament writings and the New Testament writings and throughout the history of mankind, the revelation of God has always either been historical or prophetic at the time it was written. So either, you're, either God is giving revelation about what he did, like when uh, Moses wrote the account of Genesis, he, he wrote the account of what God did and what he did through the people that were there in the beginning with Adam and Eve and then the patriarchs and then Noah and then, and then Moses and then the calling. And so in any point of human history, the revelation of God has always either been historical or prophetic, giving revelation about what God is going to do or what God has done. And as we study even the person of the Antichrist this morning, and you look at how the progression of information and revelation about God's program for this person that is going to be instrumental in carrying out God's plan at a certain point in history that's coming up, you'll see that it's, it's throughout Scripture that it, it is referenced to. And so it's, it's not like that you take one part of God's future program and isolate it from the entirety of God's program. And I, th- I think that's why it's so important that we understand the totality of God's purpose and God's plan and God's program uh, throughout human history the things that have happened, the things that God promised that would happen, and things that are going to happen in the future. So as we look at that, I want you to be careful that we don't just throw that part of the book of that part of the Bible out and say, well, it doesn't matter because it's it doesn't have any, any relationship to me. Well, it the actual giving of the law doesn't have any relationship to you either, other than it established God's moral law and it established how God dealt with the people of Israel so that you can understand better why we should be careful how that we uh, respond to God in our day and in the revelation that we've been given for the church. So begin uh, in Revelation chapter 6, last week when we started in our look at the uh, vision that John had in heaven prior to the beginning of the tribulation, you saw that in heaven there was a book that was sealed with seven seals. Now, the, the lamb that was slain was worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And so as we we'll go through this book, you'll understand that the book is the right to have dominion and rule the earth. That dominion was given first to Adam when God created the, the earth in six days out of darkness and out of the earth that was covered with water and judgment. In six days, he created a world for man. And then he made man in his own image, and he gave that dominion of that earth that he made for man to Adam and to Eve, and they were to rule and have dominion over the earth. And as soon as God did that, Satan appeared on the scene and deceived Eve and, called, and caused Adam to sin against God and to give up that right of dominion and rulership, and Satan usurped that and became the god of this world. And God honored that because God is a, a just God and an honorable God, and He honored what His created man did in giving up that dominion to Satan. Now, Jesus Christ is the second Adam. He is born of a virgin. He is not of the first Adam. He is a perfect, holy lamb that was sent to die for the ones that God has ordained to save throughout human history. And so He came to earth in a, in a specific point in human history, In the first advent of Christ, he came as a baby born of a virgin, and then he lived his life in total submission to the Father and in total holiness and righteousness. He gave revelation of the Father to man so we would understand who he was and what God purposed in him. And then he died on the cross as a perfect substitute, a righteous lamb, and therefore he righteously won back the right to rule the earth. But the ruling of the earth didn't happen immediately after that. He ascended back to heaven because there was a plan of God to to bring about the church, the bride of Christ. In the meantime of the break between God's plan for Israel and God's future plan for Israel to be done. 
and as the second Adam, and as the king of the Jews, he will come back to earth at the end of the tribulation, and he will be the king over Israel and over the whole world, and he will be the second Adam to have dominion to rule the earth. And at the same time, he will bind that Satan, that serpent, the one who usurped the authority, he will bind him for the entire thousand years of the reign of Christ. And so that's what we have as we're looking at the, the, back, the backdrop of what we're looking at now as we go into this time of the tribulation. So as he is in heaven preparing for the unveiling of these birth pangs which will give birth to the kingdom age, these birth pangs are the events of the seven-year tribulation, and they will give birth to the kingdom age. So all these birth pangs have to, have to be carried out, and the seals are the events or the birth pangs that will carry out the, the events of the seven years that will bring in or give birth to the kingdom age. And so at, at, as we have this, this book opened, it is the, the book of the, the right to rule the earth, the book of the, the title deed to the earth, as the only way that book can be opened is for these events to be unfurled. And so you'll see that instead of the seven seals being the first of a series of judgments, the seven seals are the entirety of the seven years. And the seven seals are broken at the beginning of the seven years, and the effects of each seal will be carried out throughout the seven years. So we look in chapter 6, verse 1, we see the first seal, which is the unveiling or the revealing of this man on a white horse. It says in verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he sat on it, had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So the first seal is representative of a man who is riding on a white horse. Now what is significant about a white horse? We see in Revelation that Jesus is going to come back riding on a white horse. So what does the white horse signify? Okay, conquering king. So if a king went out to conquer, usually when he came back with the spoils of war, he would be riding on the white horse. He would be, be obvious to everyone, this is the guy that led the conquering army. He is the one who is in charge. So the, the white horse here is not reflective of Jesus sitting on a white horse. It is, set, it is reflective of any conquering person that is, that is going to be a conquering king or a conquering ruler. And so here it is that the first seal is broken and you see this man sitting on a white horse and he's been given the authority to go forth to conquer the world. And this is the Antichrist. Now, the term Antichrist is found in the book of 1 John. And we're going to look at this person, who is this person, and then we're going to see um, the different aspects of Scripture that talk about his coming and the revelation of that person as the Antichrist. In 1 John chapter 2, in verse 18 it says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming. Now when he says Antichrist is coming, he's, speak, he's speaking of a particular person that is coming. The Antichrist is coming. But he says, just as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen from this. We know that it is the last hour. Now what does it mean when it says many Antichrists have risen in reference to the one Antichrist that's coming? People that have the same mentality, the same uh, thought process, the same rebellion, the same lawlessness as the one is going to be exhibited in the person of the Antichrist, when people have the same mindset to worship Satan or to, to obey Satan or to hate God and to rebel against, they have the spirit of Antichrist. And that's what he says there again in, um, in verse 21 of the same chapter, verse, of chapter 2 of verse John, I have written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you, not I have written to you, because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no one is of the truth, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So this is the mindset. So the Antichrist is going to be known 
not because he says he is Christ, but he's going to be known because he is opposed to Christ. So the Antichrist will be revealed as the one who opposes the name of Jesus, who opposes the person of Jesus Christ. He is not coming saying, I am Jesus. He is coming in opposition to Jesus. And that's key. Because many people think that the Jews are going to accept the Antichrist as their Messiah. But that's not true. He, they're going to accept his covenant that allow them to do their temple worship and, and give them some kind of form of security. But they're not looking to the Antichrist as a Jewish Messiah. They're looking at the Antichrist as just that in the, when he comes, he's going to be representing the aspect that they're going to have security and the ability to do the Old Testament worship. But he is not representing himself to be Christ. He is coming in opposition to Christ. So anti means opposed, against. It doesn't mean taking the form of or trying to be Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, so he, his idea, I mean, he's coming is in opposition to Christ. So it wouldn't be somebody like a pope who would say they're for Christ, but they might not adhere to his teachings anymore? It won't be a pope in the sense that a pope is a religious leader. It's going to be a political leader. The Antichrist is a ruler. He is, a, he is like Nebuchadnezzar. He is like Alexander the Great. He is like Nero. He's going to be a ruler of the last stage of the Roman Empire. So he's going to be a political person that's going to join with a religious people or a religious segment of the population to control the people. So he's going to use the false church. He would use the pope or someone like the pope to generate a desire for the people to come together and follow this man. But, he is, but the, the Antichrist will not be a religious leader. He'll be a political leader. Okay, so, so in chapter uh, 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 4... In first, in first John chapter four, verse three, again he mentions this word antichrist. He says in verse one, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of antichrist, which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So the spirit, of, the spirit of Antichrist is those who reject the name of Christ and say that Jesus is not the Christ, Jesus is not the Son of God, that's the spirit of Antichrist. And so when Antichrist comes, he is coming, even though there's many Antichrists in the world today because there's many that reject Christ, this is going to be the supreme Antichrist in the fact that he will be, his whole program will be in opposition to Jesus Christ. So, whereas we have the revelation of Jesus Christ in the person of Christ and in the apostolic message of Christ, this person is going to come along and say, Jesus is not the Son of God. He is not the Christ. He is not Him. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, we'll, sh we'll share that as we go along in this passage. Okay. Okay, so that's the, that is where we get the name the Antichrist because it's mentioned in, in, the, in the book of 1 John as the Antichrist. Now, as far as to the person, uh, go back to Daniel. In relationship to his program with the Jews, we'll start there. And we'll, we'll have different aspects of his relationship. But we'll start with his relationship to the Jews. So we'll start in Daniel chapter 9 as to understanding who this person is in relationship to God's program for Israel. And it's important that you see all this coming together at the second advent of Christ in God's relationship to His church, the bride, God's relationship to His people, Israel, and God's relationship to the kingdoms of the Gentile world that He has ordained to bring judgment against Israel. So, in Daniel chapter 9, we have this, this understanding of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And we've talked about the 70 weeks of Daniel when we were talking about God's program for Israel. And in verse 24, the angel told Daniel that 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So these 70 weeks of years, this 490-year period of time, God has ordained to completely fulfill every promise that He's made for Israel. And this fulfillment will be accomplished in the coming of the Messiah. 
When the Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom, it will be the fulfillment of every promise that was made through Israel. And he mentions all those promises right there uh, when he comes to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So all that is part of his program for Israel. He promised that in the coming days of the millennial kingdom, or the messianic age, the millennial wasn't there then because they didn't know it was a thousand years. They just knew the messianic the Messianic age was coming. In the Messianic age that was coming, it was prophesied that it would be an age where all of the Jews were saved, all of them lived in the reality of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the, the, the Messiah would live amongst them, he would be king over them, and it would be peace and prosperity, and he would have a perfect temple and a perfect holy place, and the king's throne would be there, and it would be the fulfillment of all that he promised to Abraham, and through all the prophetic promises to the Jews. Now, 493 years from the point that Daniel wrote this, he says there's going to be 490 years. Now, as he, gets, as he gets the details, he says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 490, I mean 483 years. So you have the seven weeks or the 49 years that it took to rebuild Jerusalem, and then you've got the additional uh, 62 weeks that comes to Messiah the Prince, which is the, uh, the unveiling that Jesus riding down the, the street on the donkey and the people acknowledging that He is the Messiah. That was 483 years from the time of 445 B.C. when Artaxerxes issued the, de the, the decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem until Palm Sunday was 483 years in the Jewish calendar of 360 days to a year. Okay, any question about that? So the first 483 years of the 490 years has been fulfilled when Jesus rode down the street on the donkey and was proclaimed to be the Messiah, the Prince. And then it says, then after the 62 weeks, which are the, six, seven, the seven weeks and then the 62 weeks, this, the, after the, the 483 years, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince, and, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So we know that between the time that the Messiah, the Prince, was acknowledged to the time that he died on the cross and then the time that the Jerusalem would be destroyed and the temple would be destroyed, that there was going to be a time frame before this last week began. So we know that there's a time frame. We just don't know how long it's going to be. So then he says, The people, the Prince, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war and desolations are determined. And he, who is the prince to come. Now the prince to come is the same person that's identified in John, 1 John as the Antichrist. This prince who is to come is of a Roman descent. So his natural origin is a Roman descendancy in line for the, the last ruler of the Roman Empire, which is the last ruler of the fourth kingdom that is outlined in Daniel, which we'll go to in here in a few minutes to show this, this one comes up out of the fourth empire. It says, He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So here he says that he's going to make a covenant with Israel. Now many people say that he's going to make a peace treaty, and he's going to establish a time of peace. And so in 1 Thessalonians 5, when it says, uh, when it's talking about the, uh, the coming of the day of the Lord, and he says, uh, you, you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just, just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety, so then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So many people say that the Antichrist is going to enter into a treaty with Israel, and it's going to bring peace. And then during this time of peace, then the day of the Lord is going to begin. So many people say the day of the Lord will begin at the midpoint of tribulation because they're going to be experiencing peace until the day of the Lord comes, and then they're going to be cast. I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's what he's saying. In 1 Thessalonians, he's not talking about Israel having peace. He's not talking about the Jewish people here. He's talking to the church. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, he's talking about the church. And he's giving the church comfort to know that they're, first of all, not going to miss out on the rapture if they die before the rapture takes place. 
And secondly, he's going to see saying that they're not going to go through this time of destruction, this time of tribulation that's coming on the earth. So this whole passage is dealing with the church, it's not dealing with Israel. So what he's saying is that at the time that the day of the Lord begins, at the time of the rapture of the church, which initiates the day of the Lord, the world is going to be experiencing a time of peace and safety, somewhat like it was in the days of Noah, when they were not concerned about judgment, they were not concerned about the flood, they were just living their lives as normal. And so what he's saying is people will be unconcerned, it'll be a time of relatively peace and uh, comfort that will, they will suddenly be thrust into this time of judgment and tribulation. So the, the Antichrist will make a covenant, and it's, it gives indication of what the covenant is about. He says he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offerings, which indicates that he, the covenant is going to allow them to have the sacrifices and the grain offerings. Because at the midpoint he's going to violate the covenant. So if he's violating the covenant... It makes sense that the covenant was all about what he had given them. So at the same time that the world is going to be thrust into what we're going to see in just a second, and I'm, I'm trying to tie these together so you'll see the different things that are coming in place, but the opposition to Christ is the forefront of the program of the Antichrist. So he's going to join with this, he's going to join with this religious system that's left in place after the rapture of the church, and they're going to all agree to this program of opposition to the name of Jesus and the Christian theology and the Christian foundation. And they're going to revert from the name of Christianity to another name of another religious system. That's his opposition to Christ. Since the Jews already oppose Christ and have already rejected Christ, according to God's sovereignty and God's giving him the the mindset or the thought to say, well, I'll just give Israel a special covenant and they can have their own worship because they already have rejected Christ and he's going to allow them to have a temple and allow them to have a worship for the purpose of God that God puts in his heart to do this, not because he's just thinking the Jews are special people. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Okay, so the last seven years of this 70th week of Daniel begins with Revelation 6, chapter 1, when the first seal is broken. Now, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. In relationship to the church. Now, Paul is writing to the, second, to the Thessalonian church again. Because what happened was after he wrote the first letter, then people, somebody came along and gave them another letter or told them that Paul was misled and had told them falsely because they're, they're already in the day of tribulation. So Paul says, starts out in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure. They were shaken from their composure. They were shaken from their right thinking that they were not going to go through the tribulation because somebody has come along and said, you're already in the tribulation. And so Paul is saying, I need to correct you. I'm writing that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, the day of the Lord is going to thrust everybody on earth into a time of judgment. And these people have been told, after Paul had given them clear instruction in 1 Thessalonians that they would not be present when the day of the Lord comes, they've now been told by false teachers that they are in the day of the Lord, and Paul is correcting that. He says, Now, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless these two things are in place. There's two things that have to be in place, or you're not in the day of the Lord. And if you are if you are in the day of the Lord, these two things will be obvious. The first is that the apostasy comes. Now, the apostasy is not someone rejecting Christ who professed Christ in, in individually, or here or there churches that reject what they believed in. Apostasy is not anybody losing their salvation. The apostasy is when Christendom, 
the church, the visible church, the church that for 2,000 years has named the name of Christ, has named the doctrines of Christ, has the Catholic Church is an example. The Catholic Church still holds that Jesus is the Son of God. When the Catholic Church and any other Christian church that is not part of the true church that's raptured out, when they're introduced to this person, the Antichrist, who is in opposition to Christ, and he is going to use these people that are religious, that are left behind, that are part of the Christendom, part of the church, and he's going to convince them to be in opposition to Christ. And the apostasy is when Christendom rejects Jesus, rejects the name of Christ, and turns from their Christian heritage and goes into a whole new religion that does not name the name of Jesus at all. That's the apostasy. Worldwide, the Christian church that's left behind, that's not part of the true bride of Christ, after the rapture, they will all join with the Antichrist program of opposition to Christ, and they will reject Christianity, they will reject the name of Jesus, and they will apostatize and form the religious system that in Revelation 17 is called the harlot that persecutes anyone that during the tribulation accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're going to persecute them. So this is a false religious system that the Antichrist will use to help further his, as his ascension to power in the world. Anybody understand that? Everybody good? Question? Is this going to happen before the rapture? We're actually going to see... No, this will happen after the rapture. Well, what, what, he, no, what he's saying is, they're saying we're in, the, we're in the tribulation. And this says, no, if you were in the tribulation, this would have already happened. And so what he's saying is, you can't be in the tribulation without this being there. Okay. So at the beginning of the tribulation, it's going to happen immediately. At the church is raptured, this mindset and this opposition is going to take place immediately after the rapture. It doesn't mean the tribulation begins immediately after the rapture, but the mindset begins immediately after the rapture. Because the Antichrist has to sign a treaty with Israel to begin the seven years of the, of the tribulation, but he has to be a world figure prior to the seven years beginning. In other words, he has to be a world-renowned figure to sign a covenant that has the authority to sign a covenant with Israel to give them the right to have temple worship. So he has to be a world figure. Now, we may see the rise of the Antichrist, and we may know that's who he is before the rapture, but this won't happen as far as the apostasy until the, until the rapture takes place. We'll talk about that in just a minute. We hadn't got to the one world government just yet. No, it's a good question, but we're, we're getting there. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to put it so that you see how it all ties together with all the different aspects of God's promise dealing with Israel, dealing with Gentile kingdoms, and dealing with the church. Okay, so this man of lawlessness, it says this, the, the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. So the man of lawlessness gives an aspect of his character in, in, in not just in opposition to Christ, he has the lawlessness in which he denies the natural law and the moral law of God. The son of destruction. Now when we talk about the son of destruction, what does that mean? Gavin Newsom may be the Antichrist, you're right. He's got the personality or the charisma. The son of Satan. The son of Satan. So if you, and, and I'm not going to be dogmatic on this one, but if you want to go back and you want to contemplate what, Jesus, what God said in the garden, go back to Genesis chapter 3. In chapter 3, after the fall of Adam and Eve, and God speaks to the serpent, he says in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Now what did he do? What did the serpent do? Deceived. He deceived Eve, and he caused Adam to fall. He brought the curse upon the whole world, and he brought the curse of sin upon man, and he usurped the dominion of the earth. Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle. Now first of all, this person, this serpent, this is Satan who took upon himself the form of a serpent. 
He did not indwell a serpent that God created. You understand that? He took upon himself the form of a serpent. In other words, he made himself into a serpent being. He didn't indwell a God-created animal. But then God curses his own created animals that looked like Satan. Okay? Because they what said. Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. So on the first part of this curse, he points to the created order of God and the created beings of God that he created that Satan took the form of. And so he says that cursed, is every, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. So he turns, first of all, and he curses the animal kingdom that Satan represented or took on to be like. Okay? So then he says, then he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, what is, who is the seed of the woman? Every human being born in this world except Jesus Christ is a seed of the man. Jesus Christ is the only one that came through the woman. So when he's referring to the enmity, some people say, oh, it's talking about the godly line and the ungodly line. He's specifically talking about seed. And just like it says in Galatians when he says that Abraham's seed, not seeds, but seed that is Christ. Here he's not talking about seed in a, in a plural, plural sense. He's talking about seed individually. So the seed of the woman is a reference to the coming person that's going to be born of a virgin, the person of Jesus Christ. So there's going to be enmity between her seed and the seed of the serpent. So what is the seed of the serpent? The Antichrist. So in the context, and then he says, and the seed of the woman will bruise you, the Satan, on the head, which means he'll destroy you. Satan will be destroyed by Jesus Christ. And that will take place when Jesus Christ cast him into the lake of fire at the end of the millennial kingdom, when Satan is loose for a short time and he deceives the world into rebelling one more time against the king of kings. And God will send fire down on heaven and destroy the people. And then he will take Satan and cast him into the lake of fire. So the seed of the woman will destroy the seed of the serpent by crushing him. And then it says, and you, or the seed of the serpent, will bruise him, the seed of the woman, on the heel. Satan opposes everything Christ does. He is a thorn in the flesh. He is a hindrance to God's program from the standpoint that he's trying to hinder. It's like having a pain in your heel. It doesn't crush you. It doesn't destroy you, but it makes you uncomfortable and you feel its effects. The church and the people of God will always feel the effects of this person. And at the end time, when the seed of the serpent is running wild and the last three and a half years of the tribulation when he is ruling the earth, you're going to experience that severe persecution of the seed of the serpent. Now, the question is, the seed of the woman had a supernatural and a natural origin, right? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Word that became flesh. He is God who was born of a woman. So the Holy Spirit caused the, the impregnation, the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, and He had the, the natural birth that came from the woman that identified Him with the Jewish people, and then he had a supernatural origin of God. In Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God came down and intermingled or intermarried with the sons, the daughters of men, it was fallen angelic beings that took upon themselves human flesh, just like the serpent took upon himself the, the, the flesh of a serpent. These angelic beings took upon themselves human flesh and intermarried with the daughters of men and created an abnormality 
Satan's attempt to destroy the possibility of a seed of the woman coming into fruition by destroying the whole human race. And God destroyed the human race at that time with a flood. And then in the future, is this going to happen again? Where Satan is going to cause the conception of an individual that's going to become his seed, the Antichrist. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This lawless one, in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That happens at the midpoint, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Do you not remember that while I was with, still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then... That lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So here is the one who is coming. Now what is restraining his coming now? The church being here, and it's the Holy Spirit that is indwelling the church. And so when the Holy Spirit is no longer restraining this part of God's program, so God's program will continue in building the church until the church is completed. And when the church is raptured out and the church is completed, the Spirit of God is no longer restraining the purpose of God in bringing forth this Antichrist. So the sixth seal that is going to be broken cannot be broken until God is finished fulfilling His promise to build His church and to bring in His bride. And so when the church is completed, then the Spirit of God will no longer hinder chapter 6, verse 1 of breaking of the seals and the tribulation time beginning. So now the time is right for the tribulation to begin and the Spirit of God will not restrain that from happening. In other words, the, the tribulation cannot begin until the Spirit of God allows it to happen. He restrains anything from going in that direction as far as fulfilling that or bringing to beginning of that until the church is finished and the church is completed. So what is restraining that event from happening where the Antichrist has the authority to go forth to conquer is the Holy Spirit. He will not allow that to happen until it's time. And so here he says, says and after the Spirit of God is no longer restraining he said, and then that law is going to be revealed. Now, the restraining means he's restraining him from coming to fruition, from coming to a public opposition of Jesus Christ and to encourage the whole world to follow him in his opposition to Christ. That's what he's restraining, was the going forth of the Antichrist to have influence in the whole world to bring about the world's uh, rejection of Jesus Christ and then elevate himself to become, in, at the midpoint, the dictator of the world. Okay, now look at this word. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end. Now the Lord will kill the Antichrist when he comes. All right, that's what it is. With his coming, he's going to slay the Antichrist. Now go to Revelation chapter 19. In 19, you have the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 11, I saw heaven opened up and behold a white horse. And here's again, a white horse. But this time it is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the victorious conqueror coming to conquer the earth. And he's riding on a white horse. But he comes down and he destroys the armies of the Antichrist in verses 18 and 19. And then in verse 20 it says, The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those he, who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Okay, now wait a minute. It says that he kills him at his coming. He will slay with the breath of his mouth. This beast and this lawless one is the same person. <coughs> so what happens is, when Christ comes back, at the same time he kills his armies, he kills the Antichrist, he kills the false prophet. They're slayed with the breath of his mouth. In other words, Jesus Christ speaks the word and they're done. In fact, it's going to be, if you read back in Ezekiel 28, and it talks about 
this, this picture of Satan, and then it goes and it flows from Satan to the Antichrist, and it says fire will burn from within and he will be destroyed and, and everybody will see him. In fact, that's what you, if you want to just make a note of that in Ezekiel 28, uh, I believe that reference is exactly to this event. It says here, uh, in verse uh, 17, the second part of that, it says, I will cast you to the ground. I'll put you before kings that they may see you by the multitude of your iniquities, by in the unrighteousness of your trade. You profane your sanctuary. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I've turned you to ashes on the earth. So he goes from talking about the anointed cherub to his rebellion, and he talks about his subordinate or his, uh, his progeny, the Antichrist, who is going to be before the kings of the earth, is going to be destroyed, and he's going to have fire from within, destroy him, and he's going to be ashes on the earth. But then he is cast alive, which means, if you, know, if you understand the program of God, after the millennial kingdom, there is the, the destruction of this earth and the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, all of the dead from Cain to the last one in the kingdom age that rebels against Jesus Christ and is killed, they're all resurrected and appear before the great right throne judgment and judged and then cast in like a fire. But these two are cast in like a fire before the thousand years, before the, day of, before the great right throne judgment. So they're killed at Jesus' coming and then they have to be resurrected and judged on the spot and cast into the lake of fire before the great right throne judgment. <laughs> so these two individuals, which we will look at when we get to chapter 13 of Revelation, these two individuals, the beast and the false prophet, are killed by his coming, and then they're, made, then they're brought back to life and cast into the lake of fire in a, in a resurrected body designed to exist in the lake of fire. <laughs> Any questions? <coughs> a lot of information. I'm sorry. I try not to get off target of where I'm at, but there's so much that you have to add in as you go through. Okay, so one other thing about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 9, that is the one who's coming. Now, what does it mean when it says his coming? Does it just mean his revelation or his revealing, or does it mean his actual being? And that's where you have to look at that word. It means energized or brought into power, brought into being. So is the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan? Is that talking about Satan's generating him in the same way that Christ was generated by the Spirit of God? In other words, is it possible that Satan will, will find a Roman woman and cause her to have birth to this person that's going to become this seed of Satan? It's, it's very possible. Because if you look at what happens throughout this second, second advent with the person of this Antichrist and then the coming forth of this person called the false prophet and then the, the casting of Satan down to earth at the midpoint of the tribulation and he's called the dragon and the people worship the dragon and then they worship the beast because the dragon tells them to worship the beast. You have the unholy trinity. And we'll talk about that as we get into the trumpet judgments and this last of the trumpet judgments is the woe judgment. And this last woe judgment is the unleashing of the unholy trinity on the whole earth for the last three and a half years. And so this would make sense that Satan is trying to manipulate and present himself just like God. You have God the Father, you've got God the Son, and you've got God the Holy Spirit. And the Son is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. He was born of a virgin. He was, had a supernatural birth. And then you have Satan presenting himself to be the head of the unholy trinity and the Antichrist as his son or his seed that would come forth in a supernatural way. And then you've got this false prophet who represents the same attitude as the Holy Spirit who points everybody to worship the beast. So you have this unholy trinity that's unleashed at the end of the second half of the tribulation. Okay, so he comes with the activity of Satan and with all power and signs and false wonders and with the deception of wickedness. If you think that Satan in the past has been able to deceive like he did in the Garden of Eden with, with, with Eve, this is going to be multiplied greatly. He is going to have such power to deceive. If you think it's bad now with what's coming with AI, 
you're not going to be able to understand or believe anything. If you don't have the foundation of truth nailed down, you're going to be caught up in a deceptive world that is going to be so easy to be deceived. Everything's going to be caused. You're not going to be able to know what's true, what's not true, unless you have a foundation of the Word of God. He's going to have such power to deceive that the whole world will just be enamored and they will follow a lie because he's got power. He's got might. And then you'll see when we get to Revelation 13 when he gets killed and then he's brought back to life. So here you have again the same thing of the of Jesus Christ. He was killed and then he was resurrected. This Antichrist is going to be killed and he's going to be resurrected. That's why it says in Revelation 13, it says that this one, that they're going to worship, the whole world's going to be enamored and worship after him. It says uh, in verse 14, and he deceives those, this is, the, this is the false prophet, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come back to life. He's going to get killed. At the midpoint of the tribulation, he's going to get killed, and then Satan's going to resurrect him back. And he's going to come back with a full authority and the full power and the full person of Satan, and he's going to have all that in addition to the signs and miracles, the ones he had at the beginning. Okay, let's go back to Daniel and look at this from the standpoint of the Gentile kingdoms. The same person that is mentioned in the revelation to Daniel of the Gentile kingdoms that are going to come to have dominion over Jerusalem. So in Daniel chapter 7, you had this vision, and we're not going to all the detail, but the vision was the four, the four beasts, Right? You had Nebuchadnezzar, who is the head, which is the lion, and then you had the, uh, the secondary resembling a bear, and then the leopard, and then this beast that was undescribable. So then you get down there, and it talks about this last beast in verse uh, 7. It said, And after this I kept looking in the night vision, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns, while I was content, contemplating the, the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth uttering great, great boast. So this was this fourth beast, which is the fourth kingdom, which began with the Roman Empire in Jesus' day or before Jesus' day, and will extend all the way until the time of the Antichrist. And this little horn will be the last ruler of that fourth beast. So the Gentile nations began with Nebuchadnezzar and will end with this Roman Empire that will come back to, to life, come back to power with this Antichrist person. In verse uh, 23 is the explanation Daniel has given about this fourth beast. Verse 23, and thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them. And it will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High and will wear down the saints of the, whole, the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given to his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Okay, so here you have a one-world system, a one-world government, and you have ten kings. And out of the ten kings comes the Antichrist kingdom. Now, when is this going to take place? We don't know. Sometime between now and the beginning of the seven years, the one-world the one government is going to be put in place. Now, it, can, it could be put in place immediately after the rapture, and the ten, the ten kings could rise up immediately after the rapture. And then the Antichrist could be the one that orchestrates the ten king one world government. But he himself does not become king over that one world government until the middle of the tribulation. Because the, the Antichrist does not take authority, it does not take rulership over the, the world until the middle of the tribulation. The ten kings are in place at the, at the first three, three and a half years. We know that they're going to be there for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And then he's going to overthrow three of those, and then the rest of them are going to submit to him. So as far as how and when this one world system comes into place, and how and when the ten kings are, are established, we don't know. But between now 
and the beginning of the tribulation, it has to be in place. And I believe it will be orchestrated by the Antichrist, and I believe he will be the one, the architect of putting this ten king nation, or ten king uh, ruling power in place. The one world system will be in place, and then it will be governed by ten kings, or ten people, or ten nations, and then the Antichrist will take them over at the midpoint. But when that will take place, we don't know. It could take place immediately after the rapture of the church with all the confusion of the rapture of the church and the invasion of the north from the north of Russia and its armies to invade Israel. Out of that can come the one world system, the one world government. So that could happen during the beginning of the first of the tribulation or it can happen prior to that. But we don't know. But there will be a one world government and there will be ten kings that will ride over, rule over that and then the Antichrist will rule over at the midpoint. And we'll go through the process of the Antichrist getting to that point a little later. Okay, so this little horn, his reign will last for three and a half years. That's when he's given authority. Now that is the same thing as it says in Revelation 13. We talk about the beast. And when we get through and we start into the unfolding of this, this chronology of the Antichrist and the chronology of the tribulation, you'll see that chapter 13 comes at the midpoint of the tribulation. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the Satan is cast down, and you have this, uh, this beast comes up out of the sea. Now, coming up out of the sea means he comes up out of the Gentiles. He is a Gentile ruler. The sea here is a reference to the Gentile nations, and he is the ruler of the Gentile nations. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 13, he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. So this reference to the lion, the bear, and the leopard, what's that a reference to? The Gentile kingdoms of the vision in Daniel. In Daniel, when he said there's four beasts coming up out of the sea, there was four beasts. One was a lion, one was a bear, one was like a leopard, and then the fourth one had an indescribable nature to it. So what he's saying here is this beast is, is a culmination of the Gentile kingdoms. From Nebuchadnezzar to the end, this is a culmination of the work of the Gentile kingdoms to get to this point to rule the world. And so he's going to do that. It says in verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it was slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast who is able to wage war with him and there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. So here you have the time frames in Daniel and time frames throughout the book of Revelation of a time, a times, and a half a time which is what he said uh, in verse 14 of chapter 12. Israel, it says there, the two wings of a great eagle, in verse 14 of chapter 12, two, e two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness in her, to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and a half a time. The times, times, and a half a time for Israel to be nourished is the same as the 42 months that the Antichrist has the domination to rule. And it's also the same as the 1260 days of the first half and the 1260 days of the second half. It's divided into three and a half years, the tribulation time. So keep those dates or those, those things in, in, in mind as we go through the chronology of the book of Revelation. So here he has given the authority to act for 42 months, act as the dictator of the world, act as the final ruler of the world, in conjunction with the dragon giving him the authority to do that. This is all under the sovereign authority of God, who has removed the restraining of the Holy Spirit and has allowed this unholy trinity to, to come to fruition and allowed them for the last 42 months of the human civilization before the King of Kings comes and invokes the Messianic Kingdom, this last 42 months of the human cursed world will be the worst of all. In other words, it'll, re it'll reach a climax of evil and wickedness before the light comes and destroys this time of evil. Verse 6, he opens his mouth and blasphemes against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell on earth. Okay, so he is the one who blasphemes. Now, if you go back to Daniel, there is two, uh, uh, two uh, analogies to this person. One was uh, as they, he used the, 
the real person that was the name was Antiquus Epiphanes. Is that how you pronounce that? Antiochus Epiphanes, whatever how you pronounce it. He was a type of this Antichrist. And so in, in Daniel chapter 8, when you look at that, uh, that, that type, you see some descriptions that are true about this person and not about the, the original Antiochus. It says in verse 24, And his power will be mighty and will not be by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper in forming his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. It will not be humans or any government that takes him down. It will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords that will destroy him. Okay, and then in chapter 11, when he's talking about this willful king from the north, then he goes into a description of the Antichrist that is epitomized by this king of the north. In verse um, 36, then this king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. That means he will prosper until the time is completed. The seven years is finished. The Jews call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save them and to be their Messiah and King. And the King will come down and destroy this King. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold and silver and costly stones and treasures, and he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledged him, and he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. There are no other gods but God, but there is a being called Satan, and this is the foreign god that is mentioned here, that he will, he will get his power from this foreign god, which is the king of this world, the god of this world, Satan, until he reigns to the, to the end, and then his time is short, and it comes to an end. Okay, so we have gone through kind of real quickly. Go back to Revelation 6. I mean, yeah, Revelation 6. So as we are beginning this tribulation time. What you see is the breaking of these seven seals. The first seal is the unleashing of the program of the Antichrist. So as the seal is broken, the program of the Antichrist begins, and he goes forth to conquer and to conquering. He starts out as conquering by aligning himself with a false religious system to cause the people of the world to accept his program. He joins with ten kings of the world and, and consolidates the power amongst those ten kings. As he gets to the midpoint, he overthrows three of those kings, and he is killed, but then he's resurrected, and he comes back with all the power of Satan, and he walks into the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem temple, and he desecrates the temple, he puts his image on the Holy of Holies and says, there is no, no more religious system, it's only me. And he destroys the harlot, and we'll get to that in chapter 17. The ten kings and him destroy the harlot, and then him and his one world system takes over, and the world begins to worship the Antichrist. And he will continue as the dictator for three and a half years, and then he will cause all of his armies to gather into northern Israel. In the battle of Armageddon, or the, the gathering called Armageddon, to battle against the coming of the king of kings. And Satan knows the king of kings is coming, and he prepares the armies of the Antichrist to fight against the king. And then Christ comes back and destroys the Antichrist, and then casts him alive in the lake of fire. But the unfolding of the first seal is the unfolding of the entirety of the program of, of the Antichrist. And it has to carry it out over the whole seven years. So it, it makes no sense when you, if you read commentaries that say the first seals happened and then the, the, the seven seals happened and then the seven trumpets. So the, seventh, the first seal is the Antichrist. So he did all that before the second seal even began? It doesn't make sense. And the second and third seals we're going to see next week, 
The second and third seal, and the fourth seal, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The second and third and fourth seal, the, the, the second one is the, that God takes peace from the earth. And so he unleashes conflict all over the world. And then the, the third seal is famines are caused all over the world because of the wars and the judgments that are going to fall out with the trumpets. And then fourthly, there is death over the whole world where a fourth of the population is going to die at the hands of war, of disease, of pestilence, and wild animals. Well, that can't take place at one time. It takes place over the entire seven years. So over the seven years, a fourth of the world's population is going to die because of these four things. So you see that the unleashing of the seals allows them to progress for the entirety of the seven years. And the effects of each seal will carry out over the, the seven years. And we'll get into that next week when we see the unfolding of the second, third, and fourth seal. Um, as we look at the first half of the tribulation, and then we look at the midpoint and the second half in a chronology, in a chronological order. So we'll stop there this morning, and then we will uh, start back with the second and third seal next week.